Christmas and already in advance, a happy new year. I'm Father Roderick and you are listening to the last podcast episode of the break of the year 2022. The clock is ticking, this year is almost over and a new year is about to be born. So lots of things to talk about today. This episode is brought to you thanks to my wonderful community of patrons, people that support me with micro donations every single month. I so love their support and their input because if you become a patron, then you know you get access to our Discord server where you can interact with me and with the rest of the community. It's a super valuable uh, asset in my life and especially when it comes to these podcasts and, and their preparation. You give me your input. You tell me which direction to go. And in the new year, that's even more important as we make new plans. So if you want to join the community, go over to patreon.com slash fatherroderick. And I want to specifically uh, mention Sean, who has upped his uh, Patreon um, monthly donation to the next tier. So thank you, Sean, so much. And thanks to all of you who have been supporting me this new year. And already in advance, welcome to all of you that uh, want to support me in the upcoming year. As you know, I, I depend on you to be able to reach out to so many people that would never, ever, ever listen to a priest, let alone talk to a priest or meet a priest. And I try to be there, out there on YouTube, on TikTok, uh, in the podcast sphere, on social media, um, to, to, make, to build bridges between the world of faith and the world of popular culture. I've been doing that for, for about 20 years now, and it's, it's uh, touched so many hearts. Um, and you can help me to continue to do that and even to expand that ministry. So, patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I'm recording this on uh, Thursday, December the 29th. So as you are listening to this, maybe situation in the world has changed already. But right now in the news is um, a, a bit of an alarming bit of news that came from the Vatican, or alarming, it depends on how you look at it. But Pope Francis, during his Wednesday audience, asked the crowd, um, and this was not announced, this was unexpected, to pray for Emeritus Pope Benedict, who apparently is very ill. And the way it was worded, the way it was phrased, um, indicates, uh, if, if you know the type of kind of the, the way in which the Vatican has communicated in the past when it comes to the health situation of popes. Um, it, it, to me, it's obvious that uh, there is a serious, serious risk that uh, this will be the final phase of Pope Benedict's life, that he is, uh, that he is dying, or at least that he is in danger to, um, uh, to, to pass on to the new life very soon, which, of course, will be... Um, a unique situation. I've been in Rome when Pope John Paul II died, uh, but then, of course, that was totally different. He still was the Pope. Um, he he had been sick for multiple weeks, and when he died, of course, all of a sudden, we didn't have a Pope anymore, and preparations started for the conclave. In this case, of course, we do have a Pope. Pope Benedict is no longer a Pope. He is... Uh, he's an emeritus pope, as they call it right now. It's a bit unclear 
what that exact what exactly that entails because it's been 600 years. Oh, there's someone at the door. I, I got to open the door here for a second. Hold on. <clears throat> And I'm back again. Sorry about that. There was a small interruption, but it was a very pleasant one. Um, <clears throat> it was actually um, a couple that I met during the Christmas celebrations here in the church. So uh, on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, I was the celebrant here in the church next door. And I met the son of one of the people who actually is uh, leading the community here in, in my town. And, uh, and his uh, Korean girlfriend. And we talked, and she only recently came to the Netherlands. And so, um, as you know, I, I am a huge uh, fan of the Korean culinary kitchen, or how do you say that, culinary tradition. I cook a lot of Korean recipes. So we got to talk about um, uh, Korean cooking. And, and she, uh, during that encounter, she said, I'm going to bring you some recipes. Um, and then yesterday they went to a Korean store in, I think in Utrecht, in a big city, don't have that many spe uh, specialized Korean stores. And so they just came to my door and brought me Korean noodles. There's a recipe here for bibim noodles with soy sauce. Um, and it's, so it's uh, specified how to cook them. Um, we've got, what is this? Uh, so Korean soy sauce, there is regular uh, sesame oil, which of course also gives a bit, it's, it's like roasted sesame oil, or oil from roast, roasted sesame seeds. Um, this is regular sesame seed, and this is Korean rice vinegar. And so I told her that I was going to... Um, to make the recipe tonight, and then I'm gonna um, I'm gonna invite them over maybe in the new year to come and uh, and eat. So we'll have, we'll have a little bit more time to talk. But uh, what a <laughs> what a great surprise! And you know what? This is this is what I love about these Christmas celebrations, where oftentimes there will be new people that come to church, and for many of them, it's been a while, or or maybe it can even be the first time. And so I always make sure that I have plenty of time afterwards to talk and to say hello and wish people a Merry Christmas, but also to have some conversations. And, and that, that's how you get to know new friends. So really, really wonderful. Um, and I am very, very curious to, um, to learn more Korean recipes because there's something in that, uh, in that kitchen in that style of cooking that I really, really like. Um, so I was talking about Pope Benedict. So um, he is um, probably in, in, in the last stage of his life. Um, I, I presume that the protocol is going to be almost identical to uh, uh, when a, uh, a, a current uh, reigning pope dies. Um, I also uh, assume that... Um, uh, there, there will, they will follow like all the various stages. So um, the, usually the the Pope, when he dies, is uh, laid in state, how you say that, in, in St. Peter's Basilica, so people can uh, pay him uh, his uh, their respects and pray for him. 
um, and then there will be a funeral service. Um, oftentimes on St. Peter's Square, you, you could try to do it inside, and of course it's winter also in Rome, although the weather is really good, so depending on the weather, maybe they'll do it inside the Basilica or, or outside on St. Peter's Square, um, and then he will be uh, laid to rest in the catacombs underneath um, the, the Basilica. Uh, Pope Benedict has been a major influence on the church in the last, I, I, you could even say 50 years, because even before he became Pope, he was a very influential cardinal and theologian. Um, I studied a lot of his uh, works when I was still in seminary. He's a very, very good theologian, very um, German in, in, in the sense that he is extremely clear and easy to, relatively easy to read, very methodical, different compared to, for instance, John Paul II, who had a very Polish way of writing, which is more circular. It needs, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking. Um, with Benedict uh, and Ratzinger, when he was still uh, just um, Cardinal Ratzinger, um, he's very systematic, very methodical, which makes it easy to absorb, to learn. And, and he, he always remained a teacher and, a, and a, an academic um, and that, of course, had a, a huge advantage in that he was able to have really in-depth conversations with lots and lots of intellectuals and uh, scientists and philosophers and theologians. Um, but he didn't have that, let's say, that habit of just mingling with the people that you see a lot with Pope Francis. Let, let's not under, underestimate Pope Francis because he, too, is an academic and he... Uh, <clears throat> He's a very good theologian, philosopher, and and also overall scientist. Um, but uh, uh, he he has lived a lot of his life among the people as a pastor, as a bishop, and uh, that's that's a difference with uh, um, Cardinal Ratzinger, who who didn't work in a parish, um, whose whose life it was mostly uh, confined to the academic situation. Um, but I think uh, uh, Pope Benedict may not have been the most, let's say, charismatic pope, um, but he did have a lot of authority. And uh, his, I think especially his theological contribution to the church in his writings, in his homilies, in his encyclical letters, all that will remain uh, extremely valuable for, for centuries to come. Um, and let's not forget that he did something that nobody saw coming, he is the first pope in, I think, 600 years who abdicated, who stepped down because of health reasons. At least that was what he himself gave as the, the main reason for him to step down and to make room for a new pope while he was still alive. Um, that was a complicated um, situation that I think, thanks to his graciousness, his kindness and modesty, actually worked out pretty well. Um, he lived in in a small apartment uh, where there used to be a, a, a tiny congregation or a, a community of sisters that lived there um, in, in the gardens of the Vatican, so in the backyard of the Vatican. Um, and after he retired, he never really... Uh, but he did appear in public, but never gave talks or, or stuff like that. He did write a few things and a, a short... 
essays and um, forewords and that kind of stuff. And then, of course, some people um, try to <laughs> to use his authority for their own for the promotion of their own works or opinions even. So there have been some minor frictions, um, and I don't think it it wasn't really it wasn't really Pope Benedict's uh, um, fault or anything. It's just that we've never dealt with a situation like that, and so I I, I think that after his passing, um, church uh, uh, lawyers will and and also theologians will probably rethink the whole situation because it's it's um, very likely that Pope Francis, when he will be too sick or too old, impaired in whatever way uh, to to um, to do his job, that he too will step down. Um, it's it's uh, I and I think it's a good thing. Um, I mean, I, I admired the heroism of John Paul II and also his courage to show himself in public while being very, very impaired and, and uh, um, with all his handicaps and uh, uh, his uh, Parkinson's disease. We never really got a confirmation uh, that that was what ailed um, him, but it's pretty clear that it was. Um, and, and so I, I think what Pope... John Paul II stressed was that there is value to every life, even if you are not very productive anymore, and especially in his last years, of course, most of uh, the usual business in the Vatican was run by other people and not by John Paul II. Um, But he stayed on until the very end, um, including all the decline. But I don't think that we needed another another witness of, of, of that kind of martyrdom. Um, so I think it was very wise, and in hindsight, I think also extremely good for the church that Pope Benedict stepped down uh, because he felt that it was weighing, um, all the changes that needed to be done, it was all weighing so much on him. He needed someone stronger than, than he was, and uh, he has always been extremely supportive of, of Pope Francis. And, uh, and his efforts to implement the changes that had already started under Pope Benedict. Uh, the press will always try to create contrast, and you will see this when um, Pope Benedict will ultimately die. You will see that also in, in the way that reporters will compare these two popes. Um, they will probably say that, that Pope Benedict represented the kind of conservative... Um, old-fashioned uh, direction, whereas Pope Francis is uh, much more modern and progressive and uh, has made all these changes. Um, but that doesn't do justice to either of them. Um, these two popes have so much in common. Um, it, I, I don't think on the level of theology that there is much difference. There's definitely a difference in style. There are maybe also some differences when it comes to executive decisions. But you... You don't know what Pope Benedict would have done if he had stayed on longer because a lot of the stuff that Pope Francis has done had already been put in motion and uh, and we only see a, a little bit of what's going on, whereas Pope Francis has the total picture and he doesn't make these changes all by himself. He's got a college of cardinals that also advises him, and and uh, uh, there are so many other people that know the situation locally in the Roman Curia and also worldwide very well. 
so um, it's 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 um, it's sad. It always saddens me a little bit that, especially in the media, but also among the people that are not that familiar with the Vatican, Vatican, uh, you get all these black and white comparisons. Um, I'm. I think that what I appreciate of of uh, both Pope Benedict and Pope Francis is their love for the Church. Um, there, I mean, if if you are elected Pope, it's the worst present ever because you know that your life is no longer yours. In fact, you already know that the moment you get ordained. But uh, especially as a Pope, um, it's such a demanding. Uh, life and there's so much rests on your shoulders um i think you you need a very special kind of grace to realize in everything that you do that you don't have to do it alone and uh, what you often see and and i heard this in in interviews with pope benedict and also in what pope francis says uh, very often if it weren't for the prayer of the people if it weren't for their own spiritual relationship with god they would absolutely not be able to carry out this uh this the the tasks that are uh, linked to the papacy so let's continue to pray for pope benedict um for the holy spirit to continue to guide us and also to bring together people that may try to create division inside the church. We are called to unity. We're called to love one another. And if you see how much both, both Pope Benedict and Pope Francis love the church and, and have dedicated their life and in a certain way also sacrificed their life to guide the church with all the flaws that are linked to the, to the human condition, of course, no pope is ideal or perfect, but they are very well aware of that as well. But let us pray that the Holy Spirit will strengthen our leaders, will inspire them, and will continue to bring us together under our shepherds. This has been a, a year of a lot of personal changes. I'll talk a little bit more about that in um, the last episode of 2022 of The Walk, which is my other podcast. If you uh, look for The Walk with Father Roderick, wherever you get your podcasts and um, I'll walk you through everything that happened this year and what I learned from it and how it helped me and 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 w what were the struggles and but uh, for this uh, particular episode I think I'm gonna move on to the next topic and of course <laughs> you're not like movies it's movies and TV shows like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine i just get bored and never make it to the end you know you need a movie education you need a movication i'm gonna give it to you all right my best tv shows of the year um <laughs> i am going to mention a couple of television shows that i tr enjoy tremendously um but they may not be the best shows because i haven't been able to watch that much tv this year it's been a busy year and um i i'd love to hear your recommendations as to what was really worth my time but i just didn't get around watching it um but for me um uh what I've seen so far, a few series stand out. Let's start with Severance, which was an amazing um, science fiction show, first season on Apple TV+. And Severance 
was one of the surprise hits of 2022. It tells the story of um, a number of people that work at a mysterious company. They don't really know, and we don't really know what, what they do at that company, but what we do know is that when people enter the, the offices of the company, their mind is, um, is separated from their experiences and memories that they have in their day-to-day life outside of work. And so there has been a procedure that has split their brain in two in a certain way, and, and so they have their work life and they have their off-work off spare time life and these people have no memory of what happens either at work or at home um which of course for the especially for the people that work at that company is uh, is a harrowing experience because you feel that that you're locked up it's the outside person that makes the decision to actually make that severance in your mind hence the name of the television show uh, but the, but if you work there and you are done working and you want to step out the door to live your life, then then one second later you're back at work and it's the morning and it starts all over again. So it's a kind of slavery in a certain way. Um, the the show had a, a lot of qualities. Um, Acting-wise, it's brilliant. There is a whole specific, very peculiar atmosphere in, in the show and it reminded me a lot of the... Um, of the television series Lost when they discovered the hatch and when they discovered the others and there was this whole laboratory and that sort of stuff. There are a lot, there's a lot in this series that reminds me of the kind of storytelling that they did with Lost in, in the prime years of Lost. Um, and I can't wait to see the, the cliffhanger at the end of season one was mind-boggling. And I can't wait uh, to see the second season of this show. For me, one of my favorite shows this year. Then, of course, Rings of Power, the Lord of the Rings prequel on Amazon Prime, uh, a series um, that has been in preparation for many years. Um, one of the most, if not the most, costly television production ever. Um, but still uh, surprisingly good. I really enjoyed the series. Um, it's it's a daunting task, I think, to... Um, to, to to translate the let's say the the history of Middle Earth to a story for television, and of course, when Tolkien was writing the backstory of Middle Earth, he never e- even thought of 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 telling it in a way so that you could depict it in 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 any form. It was meant to be read. It was actually more like fake history in a certain way. And so um, the Silmarillion is covering a huge, huge uh, number of centuries, uh, thousands of years. And um, the makers of Rings of Power didn't even have access to the Silmarillion. They could only use uh, bits here and there um, that are also narrated in the Silmarillion that Tolkien later, when he had finished The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, uh, added to the appendices of The Hobbit, uh, or The Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure. But anyway, so he wrote kind of a little bit more of a backstory for um, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits. And, and of course, uh, he sold the rights to The Hobbit and to The Lord of the Rings when he was 
not as famous as he is today <laughs> because he needed to finance the studies of his children. And, uh, and he never got the rights back, or the, the Tolkien estate never got the rights back. But they do have a lot of um, influence on rings of power. Everything is vetted by them. And, of course, we don't know the intricacies of, of the, the actual contracts that have been signed. Um, it's going to be interesting where they will take this series. So this is going to be multiple seasons. Um, and the creators have already said that they did a very, very serious monitoring of the fan reaction so they watched how we reacted to the story what we liked what we didn't like what we hated uh, they all want to learn from that because they know that uh one one thing is to make a story yourself and to <laughs> try to try to portray that in the best way possible but if it doesn't work with the audience then um then you're not telling the right story so it's going to be interesting to see if if a lot of the criticism of, uh, that that certain Tolkien fans had on the first season, how they will implement um, their their reaction to that criticism in in season two. But I think um, just seeing the quality of season one, yes, there were there was a bit of clunky dialogue here and there. There were maybe too many characters, but it was Middle Earth. It was so good to be back, and I have to say, visually, the the series was was stunning absolutely stunning it did have a little bit of a almost a dreamlike character some people complained that it didn't look real enough that everything was too beautiful and too pretty but i'm thinking it's a fairy tale you know it's a visual style i it didn't bother me at all on the contrary i i thought it it um it showed great con continuity, visual continuity, with um, the movies that we already know and love so much. Also, one particular thing that I actually really loved, maybe my favorite aspect of The Rings of Power, was the music, was the soundtrack. Um, and um, it's, it's music that I still listen to almost on a daily basis. So um, it was, it was uh, such a treat to be able to watch, to finally watch The Rings of Power. Then on Netflix, uh, towards the end of the year, uh, for me, a total surprise, Wednesday, which um, tells the story of Wednesday, one of the kids of the Adams family. And um, it, it, uh, it's a bit of a murder mystery show um, where it has a lot of the quirkiness and the kind of the dark gothic style of the, of the Adams family, but it doesn't want to be a spin-off. It doesn't try to implement everything that people knew from the Adams family uh, in, in this one season. So there was actually quite a bit of restraint when it comes to the homages that they paid to the original uh, television series and the movies that are already out there. Um, but I think they did a terrific job. It was a, such an entertaining series, wonderfully played. Uh, the main actress who plays uh, Wednesday, I think, is is absolutely terrific. Um, but also the supporting cast is um, has become dear to me. Um, plus, I, I really like the the whole kind of the 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 genre that it became a bit of a detective story, and there was there were some twists, and uh, the final episode wrapped everything up quite quickly uh and of course kind of opened opened us up, uh, opened the story up to uh, a potential sequel um and i think this the series has been so successful i think we'll, we'll get multiple seasons um and i'm i'm glad i'm really happy i think um yeah it, it, i i i never really 
cared that much for the Adams family before. I didn't grow up with it like many of you. Um, so I, I could just watch it. Um, I could go in with a blank slate and I loved what I saw and I can't wait to see where they're going to bring the story next year. Um, I, of course, have to mention Andor, which is the best thing that happened to Star Wars uh, on television so far. Andor has been amazing. If you are a longtime listener to this show, you have heard me rave and rave and rave about what they did with Andor. If you are a patron, a $5 or more uh, a month patron, um, you will have heard my very detailed uh, deep dive episodes for story secrets that I did on Andor where I dissect every single episode, all the details um, and, and also the deeper layers and um, the story beats that, that struck me and there, there is so much in this series. It, it, it's very deep. I think it's also a really interesting social commentary um, and it's got a seriousness that we don't associate with Star Wars, um, but I, I think that the fans have spoken. It's not the most successful television series for Disney yet, because it's still gathering an audience. Um, even today, there are lots and lots of people that are now only starting to watch Andor because they don't, just don't care that much for Star Wars, but everybody tells them, go watch it, go watch it. And I would say that to you as well. If, if you're not a Star Wars fan, if you don't care that much for Star Wars, you can watch this without knowing that much about Star Wars anyway. Um, but watch it for the drama. Watch it as a, as a, a harrowing story of a, of a resistance that is born under oppression. It's, um, it's something completely new, and that's what I like the most. This is, this is Star Wars renewing itself, and it, it's so desperately needed, this kind of new experimental phase in, in and I hope they will continue to do things that are not just you know fan catering uh, Star Wars if it wants to survive for a few more decades then they need to take risks and that's what they did with Andor and I think uh, they're all very happy with it and then maybe my final television show is always difficult to say what is your most favorite uh, TV show but definitely the show that I couldn't stop myself from watching and that I at times binge watched because I only started watching it this year, but it has already been on TV for three years now, is For All Mankind, uh, produced by Ronald D. Moore, who was behind the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, who also was um, leading um, Outlander, another great television series, very different, different genre, of course, but with For All Mankind, he's back in... Um, in his natural habitat, <laughs> because he's written so much uh, for for the big science fiction franchises. Um, he's been very important to Star Trek as well. Deep Space Nine heavily relied on, uh, especially in the later seasons, on Ronald D. Moore's input and his story ideas. For All Mankind is something that uh, I liked it at first, and after a few episodes I was hooked and I couldn't stop watching it. so well done. It's extremely well written and acted and it's just, oh, the mystery. Where is this going? What's happening? There's a lot in there story-wise, but also um, some extremely impressive writing on an emotional level. There were episodes that made me cry, and I still think of what happened to the main characters, and that is rare. Um, there's a lot of television, but there's very little television that 
actually touches my heartstrings nowadays for all mankind. It, it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Catholics rock! It's time for our final visit to the Peculiar Bunch. These weird Catholics that, with all their traditions and and rituals that you may not understand. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? But I'm happy to be at your service to explain some of these quirky things that Catholics say, do, or believe. So, let's go. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. All right. So, um, this is the final show of the year. And you kind of look back on, on, on what happened this year. And for each and every one of us, there's a lot that 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 we're thankful for. There are also things that we regret that we kind of wish that we'd done them differently. Decisions that we made that didn't turn out the way we we hoped. Um, also, maybe things that were hurtful. Moments where we we didn't show our best side, um, where we neglected um, maybe family or friends. Where well, if we would could go back. We would, we would do things differently. But that's one of the wonderful things. Um, on January the 1st, there's a new year. And there's something to say about this tradition of starting the new year with new resolutions, with a new uh, decision to do things better and to learn from what went wrong. And that, of course, is uh, that's, how you, that's how you grow. Uh, a mistake is not never just a mistake. It, it, it can be a learning moment. But very often you need some help to realize um, where the lesson is um, and, and, and also maybe how to, how to make right what, what you did wrong. Sometimes there is lingering damage. Um, and so um, starting anew is not just control-all-delete, <laughs> but it's, it's not just a, a, a reboot. Sometimes it will also have to entail uh, that, that you try, try to repair what went wrong. Well, all this brings me to a question that was asked in, um, in the Discord um, section of, um, of our server um, where people can ask questions. And there was a whole discussion about, uh, about, um, about confession. And uh, as you know, my community consists of Catholics and uh, non-Catholic Christians and, and non-Christians and people that... Uh, um, would define themselves more as atheists or agnostic than uh, than believers, um, and so uh, in that faith section, you you often get also observations from people that are not familiar with this this whole idea of confessing and may actually uh, feel a bit awkward about it. And so the question that was asked: So why why would you have to do that? Confess your sins to an outsider, to a priest, to someone you don't know. Um, and, and definitely, you know, someone who um, you, would, you would never just walk up in the street and, and tell your sins or your mistakes uh, to, to total strangers. So why does the Catholic Church require us to do that in the sacrament of confession? Well, um, I'll try to reply. There are multiple 
dimensions to um, to this practice. Um, and the first one is just an historical one. This is what the church has, has done ever since its conception, since the very beginning. So for 2,000 years, uh, the sacrament of confession has had a central place in among the sacraments, the seven sacraments that the Catholic Church um, celebrates. And um, the forgiveness of sins even goes back to the ministry of Jesus himself. So, and that's always uh, in for, for when it comes to um, the traditions and the rituals of the Catholic Church and the sacraments specifically, they all go back on what Jesus did. And so uh, there are multiple stories that have been uh, told for generations and ultimately were also written down about uh, Jesus' interactions with people. And he, he wasn't just the guy who multiplied bread, walked over water, and raised people from the dead. Um, Jesus also forgave people um, helped them to realize what they had done wrong or where they were actually still walking the wrong path. And he urged them to return, to convert. Conversion itself, convertere in in Latin, means to turn around. And um, he, of course, never forced people to do that, but he did what he could to help people um, to change their lives. And for him, it was very important that if you wanted to follow him, then maybe you would have to change your ways. You had to make different decisions. And, of course, if that wasn't the case, what's the point of following Jesus? It was supposed to be a new life. And if you uh, look at the the early stories of the gospel, you see that this was already part of the the preaching of John the Baptist, who was a a precursor to to Jesus. Um, And he called on people to come to the River Jordan, to be immersed in the water and then be baptized so that you could wash away your sins and start anew. Um, A beautiful ritual. And then Jesus himself also came to John the Baptist and wanted to be baptized uh, to lead the way. And and that is very important for Catholics. It's it's always why we do things is because we believe that Jesus wants us to follow him in these practices and rituals. And so, um, and, and sometimes even when people are asking for uh, Jesus' help in a very, let's say, pragmatic, physical way, like, what can I do for you? Well, I'm blind, I want to see, duh. Or I can't walk, help me so that I can walk again. Um, sometimes Jesus will also tell them, your sins are forgiven, your faith has rescued you. Um your sins are forgiven. Go, be free, start again. Um, there's this conversation that he has with this woman who uh, has uh, has sinned and, and uh, uh, is about to be stoned, actually, so punished to death. She's, she's going to be executed uh, for her sins. <clears throat> and then Jesus doesn't condemn her. Um, and he tells the people that are already there to kill that woman that the one who should throw the first stone should be the one without sins. And everybody walks away. And then Jesus stays and he says, your sins are forgiven. Um, Begin a new life or something to that extent. And so you see that Jesus liberates people by 
taking away what burdened them, what uh, what also sometimes caused exclusion and and f- for people to be rejected by others. Jesus always wanted to give people another chance. He tells this beautiful story of a of a, a father who has two sons, and and one one of them walks away with the the uh, inheritance, and then um, he makes. <sighs> all the wrong decisions and ultimately decides to go back to his father and his father is there he's waiting for him and 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 he embraces him and 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 says this son of mine was dead and now he lives again that that is the basis of the sacrament of confession and then later on Jesus tells his apostles i'm sending you out i'm going back to my father but i'm sending you out to baptize people and to forgive their sins. Uh, he, he gives Peter the, you could say, the symbolic keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whose sins you forgive are truly forgiven and whose sins you don't forgive are not forgiven. And this is revolutionary because Jesus gives Peter the same power that he has. So how can a human being forgives sins if you're not the victim of those sins, if you're not even in, in, you know, a part of the equation. That would be presumptuous, right? How can a, a human being, in the name of God, forgive sins? That's where the question comes from. You know, that, that, is, that is so weird. But we, we believe that um, Jesus relegated this power to forgive sins in his name it's never without jesus but priests bishops are um in in these situations in these sacramental situations they they are representatives of christ it's christ who forgives through the words and the actions and the gestures of the priest and so um it's, it's very important, I think, to always see this in a context that is not just uh, a context of punishment. Um, and, and we often associate um, confession with this, this whole kind of legal approach where, uh, yeah, I messed up, so I'm, I have to now, uh, they're going to read me my rights, I have to make a, a, a confession, and then I'll hear my punishment. But it's much more important to see this in the context of healing. Um, And if you want a metaphor to help you understand why, um, or at least how the Catholic Church wants the sacrament to be celebrated, it's it's when you go and see a doctor or maybe a a psychologist. Um, If you go to a doctor, you know that it's confidential and that that person has dedicated his or her life to help people like you to get better they're not there to tell you oh you are ill oh my gosh well that is too bad but it's probably your own fault so you know what good luck with that no no doctor would do that so there is no reason to hide your ailments your sickness your symptoms for a doctor because of course a doctor is there to help you but can only help you if you tell the doctor what's wrong or what went wrong. Um, if I break an arm, I'm going to the doctor and say, I think I broke my arm. And then the doctor will try to help you 
to get better. And so uh, psychologists, same thing. Um, in if, if you need some help with your mental health, um, you tell a psychologist what's going on. And it, it's not necessary to make up a story or to try to present yourself in a better light or something like that. Maybe we sometimes do that because we're afraid uh, and there may be a lot of like inner talk that is very condemning, but a good psychologist will help you also to get rid of that inner voice that, that constantly uh, accuses you. Um, and, and the same is true when it comes to the spiritual domain. When, when you've really hurt other people and you regret it, that, of course, is very important. Um, Jesus wants you to hear and to experience forgiveness. He, because he knows how much that can burden us, how much that can weigh on us when we, when we messed up, and how oftentimes it triggers that inner voice that condemns us, and it tells, you, tells us, you see... You're not good. You you messed up again. You're not. You're no good. You'll never be a good person. Uh, there's a lot of that self-talk that that many people suffer from. The priest is there to speak with the words that Jesus would tell you. I I have not ever encountered a priest who accused me or berated me or. The, the priests that I've experienced have always been extremely um, welcoming, very careful, prudent, you could say, uh, very good listeners, and always inquiring, in a, in a, but never to just out of curiosity or, or in a sort of legal attitude, like, um, okay, so name the five times you did this and the ten times. No, it's not about that. It's always like, so how can I help you? And, and what's weighing on you? And tell me about your relationship with God. Tell me about your relationship with the people around you. Um, how, do you how do you talk to yourself? And by asking these questions, a priest can help someone who comes to confession to be liberated from that burden and to share with someone else who doesn't know you and so is not prejudiced. Is that a word? <laughs> he doesn't have any preconceptions. Um, he can look at it maybe a little bit more objectively than you can yourself. And then he can, he can forgive you in the name of Christ himself. And so it's, it's always important to, to realize that the sacraments always have this tactile, real um, element to it because that's how Jesus uh, interacted with people. He never just sent a letter to someone like, hey, I, I got your email about your sins and, well, here's, the, the, here, here's my reply and you just uh, activate it by pressing enter and your sins will be forgiven. No, no, he's there. He touches people. He, he speaks to them. He, he, his advice is tailor-made for that particular person because no one is the same. And, and that's why, um, I mean, it's, it's like when you're sick, of course you can go online and you can Google and you'll, you'll find solutions. But <laughs> there's always a, a risk that you won't find the what what you need, and it's it's 
most of the time, I even if I call my physician and I say, well, this I think it's pretty simple. I think I have this and this and this. Sometimes she will tell me to come over and to have a talk. And the last time I, I did that, she had some very pertinent questions that I, of course, couldn't have never Googled myself. And it gave me a lot of insight in, in, in what was going on. And, and so that is why uh, the sacrament of confession has that, that personal angle. Um, and then the, what I often hear from people that are not Catholic is, well, well, why can't I just tell God right away, you know, in my heart? Like, I, I messed up. And, of course, that, that is already extremely beautiful, and it's, it's worth a lot when you come to that point in life where you can, can look at yourself honestly and you can pray for forgiveness and you can tell God that you're sorry. The only thing is, in your prayer, and we all know this from experience, God is not going to talk back like that. He's not. So you miss that whole, that whole accompaniment that you have in the, uh, in the sacrament of confession. You don't have that pastoral dimension of someone who listens, can ask some questions, can help you refine your, uh, your, your understanding of, of how to better yourself um, or, or go to the core of the problem. Um, and so that this is why I think um, it's very wise of Jesus to have... Um, mandated his apostles to to have those encounters in his name. And then, of course, priests are also fallible people. Uh, always also remind you if, if you always if you sometimes may feel this kind of like, oh, but I don't feel comfortable at all telling this to anyone, let alone telling this to a to a perfect stranger. But priests are also sinners. They also confess they also mess up they also hurt other people so you're not they're not better than you oftentimes when i hear confessions i actually feel much worse than the people that come to confession and and they they give me an example to strive towards and so um and then of course priests are are there to help you um to take away the fear um and to uh, to accompany you, and this is why also uh, confession is something is a recurring th- recurring thing, um, and you can go to confession as often as you like, uh, or as often as you feel you need it, but but always think uh, think of it in in terms of it's it's someone who is mandated by the church and by Jesus Himself to be a friend, to be a companion to be a doctor for your soul, uh, and, and also to be, in a certain way, um, a colleague, someone who has gone, oftentimes has gone through the same, the same stuff in life as you have, and who has heard so much and has learned so much from other confessions. Um, and that experience makes a priest very humble, uh, and, and also I'm always extremely um, thankful when someone dares to make that step but i can also totally understand that for some people this is a very hard thing to do very difficult and they may be afraid that it will trigger things and um you know jesus never forces anyone and if you if 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 the best that you can get to is asking in your heart for forgiveness by all means do that and ask for courage and ask for the holy spirit to guide you further if that's god god's will but if you need 
a person to talk to who will never, ever divulge anything that he hears in confession. If you want someone else to look at your life and your struggles from the perspective of someone who has a lot of pastoral experience um, and who knows how to listen, then the church is there for you if you need it. The church is welcoming you. But it's all up to you. I hope that clears it up a little bit. And and so for the new year, well, that that's kind of, uh, um, uh, you could say, a secular um, uh, reflection almost of what happens in, in confession. On January the 1st, we tell ourselves, you know what? Hey, we've gone through a lot last year, and um, let's turn the page. Let's start anew. I'm I'm ready for the new year. I'm going to make this a better year than last year. That's kind of how you want to feel when you come out of confession. You are like, like, okay, so the slate is clean. I can, I have the guarantee that my sins are for, forgiven and forget forgotten, and and I have extra. I have sacramental strength to uh, to build my life up and to make new choices and to to make my life and the life of others uh, better than it was. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I am currently reading book 100 of my uh, Goodreads uh, book challenge of 2022. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, an amazing year. I'm, I'm so happy that I started to do these challenges and I'm ready for a new challenge uh, in, in 2023. I want to read 150 books. Um, and with my current habit of reading, it's not going to be a problem. Um, but I, I don't want to, it's not, I don't do this to show off or anything. There's a little bit of that gamification. Of course, I like a challenge, but I'm so grateful that I did because I learned so much this year and I've been able to live other people's lives in a certain way, and, and plunge myself into uh, experiences that I would never have in my own life. And I've learned so much from other, you know, from scientists, from fellow theologians and psychologists. And um, yeah, it's it's been an... Ex I'm so happy that I'm back to reading. I want to uh, give you here a list of the five fiction books that... Uh, so not... Um, how do you say that? Nonfiction. I talked about it last week, but um, the fictional stories um, that that I really loved reading. And um, I already told you last week that I was surprised that I actually didn't read that many uh, fiction books. I I mostly read biographies or science based books, um, but I did uh, read a couple of books that I really enjoyed. First one was Age of Myth by Michael J. Sullivan. He's a very prolific, uh, fantasy writer and Age of Myth. I listened to, uh, um, um, an audiobook version of the story with multiple actors. It was almost like a, an, a radio play, extremely enjoyable, good story, very, um, um, kind of a bit tropey still in this first book, but apparently it gets better in the subsequent sequels. Um, so a trophy in the sense that it, yeah, some elements are a bit like uh, Tolkien or you know other fantasy writers, um, but it is a different world, and and um, it, it's what I loved about it is that it is it's easy to follow. You're not overwhelmed with names and facts and uh, <laughs> historic events like 
sometimes with that's kind of one of the reasons that I never read the Game of Thrones books because ugh, it's too much. I get lost in these books. Um, but Michael Sullivan really has a, a, a knack uh, for writing fantasy as if you are watching a movie or a television show. And um, I loved it. And I'm going to read the the, uh, the subsequent sequels as well. Um, another book that I... This is a book that really made me laugh so often. Um, it's written by Seth Graham Smith. And it's called How to Survive a Horror Movie. Um, it is uh, a book that... Um, that is written as if horror movies were real and if you were in, in a horror movie. And it gives you all sorts of advice on what to do and especially what not to do. And, of course, it uses uh, a lot of the, of the, the kind of the conventions in the horror genre. Uh, but then it's, it's, of course, meant to help you survive whatever happens in horror movies. And it's so funny. Um, yeah, go read it. It's hard to describe, but man, it was it was a, a lot of fun. One of the one of the funniest books that I've read this year. Um, then a, a classic one, C.S. Lewis, The Magician's Nephew. It's um, one of the stories in his Narnia, Narnia series. Not the first book he wrote, but chronologically, it is the first book of the series. Um, it tells the story of the first. Discovery by two kids of this other world of Narnia. And um, it is also one of the books where I think the mix of fantasy and theology works the best. Uh, C.S. Lewis can sometimes be a bit, you know, his, his um, theological metaphors can be a bit ham-fisted sometimes. Uh, there were a, a couple of books in the Narnia series where I really struggled with that. It was like so forced, felt so forced uh, that it almost got in the way of enjoying the story because as a theologian myself, I was like, oh, I see what you're doing here, but it feels too pushy, but not in The Magician's Nephew. I thought it was extremely elegant, subtle, um, it's well written. It's got that wonder of the first discovery, um, and you get to learn a few details about the the, the wardrobe story. Um, for instance, why is there a lantern post in, in on the other side of the uh, of the closet? You know, when you enter the snowy landscape of Narnia, there's this lamp post. Well. The, these early stories tell you why, and it's 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 genius. I loved it. Um, so yeah, definitely for me so far one of the best of the of the series. I haven't finished all the books yet. Um, I think I've read three now, so I think there are two more to read. Then Pierce Brown, another uh, young adult series, uh, very popular. The first book is called Red Rising. Um, I think this is one of the books that is closest to what I liked about the Hunger Games. I love the world building of the Hunger Games. Um, also the social commentary on all the division in society and all these, you know, the haves and the have-nots and the way the power is distributed in that world. Um, Red Rising is, is similar to that story, um, but... It's almost as in the Hunger Games. At one point, Kathleen uh, is her name. No, Katniss goes to this um, 
capital city where all the people are rich. She herself is from a very poor family, lives in a in a poor district, um, and then she uh, arrives in this amazing city where everybody is so lives such an opulent lives. It's a bit like Mon Mothma in Andor, you know, like super rich and glamorous and whatnot. Um, but then, of course, the Hunger Games begin. But Red Rising is a, what would ha- happen if Katniss tried to infiltrate in that world, became one of those rich people. Well, that is a little bit what happens to the protagonist of Red Rising. Um, uh, not only are people much richer in the capital district or whatever it's called, uh, but they're also genetically different. Um, they've been upgraded. And so uh, there's this guy who, in order to bring down the oppression uh, of this of these rich people, he becomes one of them, but it also entails getting all these genetic mo- modifications and becoming super strong. And um, it's, it's a bit like the Moses story as well, where Moses, of course, being uh, a Hebrew, uh, then is, is raised at the court of the pharaoh and and for most of his younger years lives in opulence and with great power and it's only later on that he uh identifies with the 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 lot of um of the slaves um and then leads them to freedom um very uh easy to read um definitely gonna end up as a television series one of these years um and then the my last book um that i Enjoyed tremendously. Uh, I just read it yesterday. I finished reading it yesterday. It's uh, written by John Green, who also wrote uh, The Fault in Our Stars, which has been turned into a pretty successful movie. Uh, this book is called Turtles All the Way Down. It was his second novel. It's not a sequel. It tells a separate story. Um, but it has a lot of the same conventions of his first book, where it's uh, geared towards a younger audience uh, of teenagers and young adults. And uh, in this case, it tells the story of a girl who uh, suffers from um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and also uh, has a lot of anxiety issues. Um, So uh, uh, it's written in the first-person perspective, as if you are her. And so you get access to her obsessive thoughts and how oftentimes... Uh, the tiniest things can bring her into this loop, this disaster loop, where it's like what we do with doom scrolling, that happens in her mind, and it's just like worst-case scenarios over and over again. Um, and, and then her struggle to connect to um, her peers that don't suffer from those same um, mental illness issues and, and, and sometimes also don't understand her. And then there's this one boy who likes her for, for who she is and she doesn't have to be fixed in order to be important to him. And uh, so there's this whole um, deeper meaning or this deeper message of um, accepting yourself despite your flaws and also accepting that maybe there is not a cure, there's no fix and that that too can be okay. It's okay to be not okay. Um, this sounds as if, well, it's a super, um, uh, how do you say that? It's all about the the, um, the mental issues of this uh, protagonist, but there is a, a, a deeper mystery. It has to do with a, a missing father, and, um, and so that's in the background. It's not that important, but it does 
make for a, a satisfying conclusion to the story. Um, it's sometimes it's difficult to read in the sense that you're so much identifying as a reader with the this young woman that you feel how how oppressive it sometimes is that you're literally imprisoned by your own thoughts, by your own self-speak in a certain way. And, well, I don't suffer from OCD, but I am familiar with how damaging self-talk can be. Um, and so I did recognize a couple of things in this book. Um, and I, I really thought that John Green did a terrific job of writing in a very respectful way about this. And I've, I've seen some reactions to his book from people that actually are also suffering from OCD. And they say, this, I don't know how you do it, but you read my mind. This is my life. This is how I feel. This is what I live every day. And thank you for have it, letting other people know what my life on the inside looks like. So impressive book. Very impressive. Turtles all the way down. It's a covert... Uh, reference to um, Discworld by Terry Pratchett. Uh, the world built on a huge giant turtle. What's underneath the turtle? It's another turtle. And then all the way down. All right, let's talk about food and health. All right, um, <laughs> my final trip to the kitchen for 2022, and I wanted to talk about the magic of wraps. This is um, one of the things that I've uh, prepared quite often this year, um, and it's especially for lunch. I got myself these tortilla wraps, and I um, combined it with lots of Mexican mixes, with uh, sometimes with meat, um, sometimes with tofu, and I got inspired to experiment with these wraps because of a visit to a place where probably I shouldn't have gone this last year, and it was Taco Bell. Taco Bell is very, very present in, 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 in U.S. fast food uh, uh, culture, but in the, in the Netherlands, in this part of the world, it's extremely rare. There are only a few restaurants, and they're tiny. So I went to a Taco Bell in Arnhem just to check it out. And I got myself a tortilla or two tortillas. And uh, so I was, I, I, like maybe 20 years ago, I went to the United States and I had my first experience of Taco Bell. And since we were not familiar of that kind of fast food, I actually kind of liked it. I, I'd never eaten anything that was, you know, Tex-Mex kind of. Of course, it's not really Mexican or anything, but it, it, it was so different from all the burger stuff that, Frankly, I sometimes get really fed up with if I am in the U.S. because it's all this old taste the same to me, um, and so it was kind of refreshing. It's maybe not the word for for food that has to do with beans, but <laughs> it was like okay, I think I like this. Um, but then for for decades, I've never ever eaten at uh, at Taco Bell. But I saw that they just opened a restaurant near the uh, station, the railway station in uh, in Arnhem. So I. I think I walked there, which was like a four-hour walk or something like that. It's like, hey, I think I, can, I have some calories to spare. Let's get some tortillas. And then I, I was so disappointed. It was just, it was terrible. And it was, especially the thing that irked me the most was that it was pretty expensive. And I was like, hey, I can make this at home. And so that's what I did. I just Googled 
how to make the burritos in Taco Bell style. And I du- duplicated the recipe and it actually tasted better. And then I was like, oh, oh well, now I, I know uh, I, I can do much better. Um, so I started to experiment with different fillings. And, and this was vital to the experience, I taught myself how to fold a tortilla wrap. Um, there is a technique um, that is uh, used in, in um, well, maybe not at Taco Bell, but definitely at um, Chipo- uh, Chipotle. Um, they, they've got these big burritos, you know, and there's a lot of filling inside. And I always wonder, how, how do they roll that up? Uh, if I try to do that, I basically end up with a cigar and I take a bite from one end. And then all the stuff that was once inside the burrito will exit on the other side. Well, turns out there is a specific burrito folding technique. Um, and uh, once I got that down, I was like, okay, this is now a staple uh, recipe for me for, for lunch. And one burrito, especially, especially, I always take the whole grain burritos. It fills me up for the rest of the day. And then, of course, uh, another advantage of these Mexican-style burritos is that there's always uh, some protein in there. Uh, it could be, you know, uh, some cream, uh, cheese, some meat or beans. There's a lot of protein, so it, it you don't have to eat much to to carry you through the entire afternoon. So um, really loved it. On my list for next year is the, you could say the oriental variant of this, and that is to make wraps with rice paper, especially the spring rolls, the Vietnamese spring rolls. I've been watching a couple of these uh, videos. Um, I've got all the ingredients, so that's something I'm going to practice with um, during my winter break, more about that uh, later on in the show, um, because I don't want to pitch anything here in the kitchen segment that I haven't tried myself first. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device, and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. There is one more thing here on the show that we need to talk about. And uh, I kind of put it in the technology section, but it's a thing of its own. I want to talk about my favorite games of the year 2022. Um, I did play a lot of games, especially towards the end of the year. Always when winter comes, I... I like to snuggle up in a chair and put a blanket over my uh, over my knees and 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 then play video games. And so, um, I I but I didn't play many different games. Uh, also has to do with the fact that a lot of the games um, I only have them on PC. And uh, as you know, I I, <laughs> I rebuilt my PC. Uh, it, it used to be pretty loud and uh, still consumes quite a bit of energy. So I try to avoid playing uh, many hours on the PC. I'm thinking, I'm considering maybe getting a, a how do you call it, a dream, dream uh, stream deck, is it called stream deck, I think? The the Valve. So it's a, like a portable, it looks a bit like the Nintendo Switch, it's much larger, um, and you can play a lot of the, of the games that were made for PC, you can play them, uh, but then 
on a portable device. Um, and of course, since it's portable, it's uh, it, it doesn't consume as much energy as a full-fledged, you know, big PC. Anyway, so here are some of the games that I enjoyed playing. The first one, of course, uh, definitely played it uh, for the for the most amount of time is Valheim. Uh, very cheap game. I think it's not even twenty bucks, um, and it is it's an amazing game. It's a bit like. Uh, uh, Minecraft, but then beautiful. You you can have adventures, but you can also build houses and cities and towns that you can play together. It's it's uh, it's surprisingly bug free uh, for a game that has been in development only for a very short time. Um, they've just opened another biome, so you've got these different parts of the world with different enemies. Um, I've I've uh, what I love the most in Valheim is that it is sure you can play uh you you can you can fight you can try to defeat the the bosses at various levels but you can also just build stuff uh it even has a like a, a like a free builders mode where you don't have to go and chop wood and gather stones but you can just build whatever you want providing of course that you still obey the laws of gravity um and it's been so much fun to build these villas and different types of... And, and to, to do it together with friends, yeah. Definitely um, a game that I did not expect to play this much, and I still love to just be there. It's a, it's a game where... I, it's a cozy game in a certain way. I like to just be inside that world. Second game um, that I spent a lot of time playing just recently is Dreamlight Valley. It's a bit of a Animal Crossing um, genre game uh, with Disney characters. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's very simple, um, a bit too simple. <laughs> it's now it's starting to bore me quite a bit. But what I like about it, the game is not even out yet officially. I play it on Xbox uh, Game Pass, but they are still uh they're going to release it next year um uh, for for real and uh, they but they're still in the phase where they're slowly adding new new areas and new disney characters it's fun there are little stories also um the building is very limited uh you could basically say i want this particular house and boom it puts it down and uh you can't modify anything. You can you can make your you, you have your own house, so you can expand it with some rooms and then get some furniture for that. Um, but I don't know. It, I I needed something simple to rest my mind, and uh, it, it involved a bit of gathering. I like the whole Disney vibe and the the, the songs that are playing in the background. Um, yeah, it's fun, but. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to play it much in 2023. Then a game that is on my list for this uh, winter break is just came out on Xbox Game Pass. Um, and of course, I have to play it. It's Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. For the first time, all the movies, the nine Star Wars movies, have been integrated into one uh, Lego ex game experience. I love these Lego games. Uh, and apparently, this is one of the best that they've made uh, it is still a bit grindy. Uh, does have the downsides of that every Lego game has uh, can become a bit repetitive. But 
to be able to walk around in all these different environments that we know from the movies uh, and also the quirky Lego humor that these games are known for um, is definitely putting this on my list of best games of 2023. Then, a surprise game, at least for me it was a surprise, how much I liked it. It's called Firewatch. It's a. It's almost a, an old-fashioned adventure where you are in a beautiful, I think it's Canadian area, um, and you are a supervisor of a natural reserve, and then there is a mystery. Stuff happens, and you have to go explore. It's beautifully made. Um, it's it, it feels free form, but it is actually very guided. Uh, you 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 you. you there is always it's a linear game. So in the end, everybody who played the game has more or less the same experience. Um, but I like the pace, and I love how beautiful it is. It's very atmospheric, and I'm um, again. It's it's like one of those games where I just like to play it because I feel like I'm in a totally different world. Um, and it it's almost as if you're reading a novel in a certain way. It's, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful game, Firewatch. And then, um, last one, but not the least, still playing it right now um, in preparation for the sequel to this game that will come out next year. It's Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. What an amazing game. The best Star Wars game I've ever played. Also linear. Um, you guide your hero through lots and lots of challenges, but it is amazing how good it looks. And even on older gear, I'm playing this on the Xbox One, so that's a pretty old console, um, and it is as if you're watching a movie. It's so incredibly well executed, and it's uh, it's got all the good stuff that you want in a Star Wars game, and it's a compelling story. I, I even don't care that much for the game aspect of it. I put it on, like, easy. Uh, I just want to experience the story. It's so good. And apparently the sequel is going to be even better. If this is... Uh, if this is... Uh, um, the, the How do you say that? Um, uh, if, if this is the type of quality, the standard for, for Star Wars games in the future, then... Huh, Star Wars games may actually become just as popular and just as important to the Star Wars franchise as are the movies and the television shows. Those were my favorite games of the year. Um, can't wait to hear your suggestions for games. Uh, I have some time off in the weeks to come, so let me know. We I uh, already played that one. Let's let's start wrapping it up. We need to... <laughs> this has been a long show. My apologies for that. But um, uh, I want to... Uh, end with a, a short inspirational uh, thought but before that I want to let you know that I'm going on a short winter break I've never done that before but I, I really need it I need to uh, step away a little bit from work recharge my batteries and also kind of rest my brain um, and I'm, I know that this is going to help me creatively however I will not leave you without any updates and podcasts. And that's just because I, I don't like this time of year, podcasting-wise, because all my favorite podcasters are on a break as well. And that they just don't do any shows. Or you get these rehashed shows with, like, best-off fragments from the shows that I've already listened to. I, I want to keep bringing you new stuff, but I'm going to 
uh, do very short, like mini episodes of the break uh, that I can prepare in advance so I don't have to spend much time doing them. And then I'll be back uh, sometime towards, uh, sometimes in the second half of, uh, of January with, uh, with uh, fresh content. But uh, yeah, I'm going to go on a, on a short break. Here's my quote, last quote of the year. Focus on how to be social, not on how to do social. That's a good one. All right. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon.